The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today I'd like to offer a few informal reflections about working with obstacles in meditation, obstacles to awakening or to maintaining continuous awareness. And I'll start with a, a memory, a story. This was back when I was living in Berkeley. I had just gotten back from a long retreat. There was no food in the apartment. So I went to a diner that morning to have breakfast. It's a weekday, I think, maybe a Monday. And um, as I was settling in, uh, father and son were leaving as I was sitting at my table. And I could kind of get a view of them and the cash register, and they'd gone up to settle up. And the son was maybe four years old, and he was with his dad. He wasn't even as tall as the counter yet, but he was absolutely riveted by this big glass bowl of gummy bears sitting next to the cash register. I mean, you could just tell the energy between this kid and this candy was intense. And the dad's checking out, and and the son is plucking the dad's sleeve like, can I have one? Can I have some? Can I have some? And starts kind of whining and and getting very intent intent about his wishes and the dad finishes paying and he just turned to his son and gave him his absolute complete attention and he empathized wow you really want those don't you and the son's like yeah yeah and the dad just empathizes with him for another couple of minutes and the son lets it go and they walk out And I was just in awe of this moment of parental jujitsu, right? Like, holy moly. And you can just imagine that could have gone in all kinds of other ways, especially if there was a little power struggle going on, right? But they walked out, the sun seemed happy enough, and there was no tantrum. So I'm mentioning this because my mind anyway, and probably all of our minds, we have plenty of these kinds of impulses, right? I want it, I want, I want, or I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. And it can be anything from that extra slice of pumpkin pie to deeply afflictive mind states, right? The little and the big. Each of us have our own gummy bears somewhere in there, our own catnip, if you will. And this human experience of these kinds of impulses is pretty much universal. And it can happen on a lot of different levels. The Buddha offers a list of some of the most common that are obstacles to our meditation practice. It's not comprehensive, but it's a, it's a good range. And they're known as the five hindrances. And I'll just list them off. Sensual desire, that was the gummy bears ill will, or the impulse towards wanting something to go away. And then the next one is often called restlessness and worry. I like restlessness, regrets, and worry, because regrets and worry are kind of in the same category. One is future-facing, the other is past-facing. Worry can be a combination of the two, actually, right? The next set, sloth and torpor. And the last one is doubt. 
So these are very, very common arisings in our human minds, our human hearts, that can be obstacles to meditation. In fact, I'm using the word obstacles, but the Pali word, the ancient language of the Buddha, is nivarana, which literally means to cover over, covering over. And these hindrances cover over our inner beauty and our potential for awakening. So, how to work with them. Well, we... Um, first, to acknowledge that they're there, right? Just simple acknowledgement. Even empathizing with the impulse or what's generating the impulse can be healthy, like the dad and the kid, but not indulging. And this is key, not believing the story. All of these impulses, these hindrances are based on craving of one kind or another. And craving always wants us to believe that the only way to get rid of craving is to act it out, to satisfy it. There's another really simple way to get rid of craving, which is to wait it out. It will go away one way or the other. It might come back right away, but it, it, it comes and goes, comes and goes. But the key here is not to believe the story or not to indulge. And the first step of that is seeing it, the awareness itself, the wisdom of seeing a thought as a thought, impulse as an impulse. And then there are all kinds of creative ways of relating to it. Many of you have heard of the marshmallow story, right? The Marshmallow Study, I'm sorry, not story. This was by Walter Misdell. It was done, I think it might have been done in the 80s, maybe even the 70s. It's old. And it really entered the popular culture because the popular narrative about the marshmallow story is you put a kid in a room in an experimental study place and the experimenter puts a plate with a marshmallow on it and says, I'm going to go away for a little while. If this marshmallow is still here, or when, you, when I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Well, kids are about the same age as that little kid in the, in the gummy bear story, right? Four or five years old. And um, there are all these notes and documentation about what the kids would do to try to prevent themselves from eating the marshmallow. Like they might cover it over or they might like blind themselves. Sorry for the mic pop there. They might like one, one little girl, I think went to the corner and like tucked her head in the floor and like wouldn't look and sat on her hands. So like they're really working hard. And as the story goes, the kids who were able to hold off, defer the pleasure of the one marshmallow and wait for the second, um, had more success factors in their lives going forward. So it was often interpreted in a predictive way. Okay, if you have this kind of impulse control at age four or age five, you know, you have better grades and better jobs, your marriages last longer, et cetera, et cetera. That's the popular narrative. Walter Misdell, the person who actually conceived of and executed the study, um, 
thinks that that is a complete misinterpretation of the findings. Because the findings actually show that at any stage of our development, we can learn to be creative in much more sophisticated ways than that cute little girl in the corner sitting on her hands. And to reframe and reorient towards our own drives, our own impulses, whether they be desire, ill will, worry, whatever. And that that transformation then predicts future success future health, future well-being. So I find this powerful, right? This can happen at any age, not just at four or five. It's not destiny to have a lapse of judgment or a moment of giving in to a hindrance. There are skills. So that reframing is a helpful skill. The reorienting to the hindrance. Often, hindrances are a reaction to some kind of discomfort with the way things are. For example, I might be craving sweets because I'm bored or feeling overworked or there's something else that's trying to be fed, right? Something not going well. Sensual desire is often compensatory for something unpleasant. So to notice, to be simple in the moment rather than to build the story can allow us to see that. If instead I react to my hindrances, well, many of you already know this, this brings up more. So if I'm angry about desire, then I've got two hindrances. And then if I start um, getting restless or worried about the fact that that's happening, boom, I've got what Andrea Fella calls a multiple hindrance attack going. There's hindrances happening about hindrances. Anger about restlessness, right? Desire about desire. They feed on themselves and there's a feedback loop and they can blow out of control. We can really spin out actually. So antidote to that is to be simple. Turn towards it with compassion if you can, or at least don't make things worse, right? Step back, step back. Then, rather than multiplying, the hindrance is just there. The next, another area then to explore is investigation, interest, Dhamma Vichaya, the topic last week. It's really helpful to be open to, but not to dig for anything that hindrance might be covering up. Maybe under that anger, there's grief, for example. Or under that ill will, there's fear and need to control. Right? Or under that sloth and torpor, which I, I prefer these days, um, freeze and resistance. Maybe there's something under there that needs caring for. So not to dig, 
yet to acknowledge, to hold with kindness. It can be helpful to sometimes to step back and observe with a really big container, and other times to step in with gently cupped hands in a loving way. Be with, be with experience. Whether it's gentleness towards the impulses of the hindrances themselves or towards any discomfort underneath them. Some years ago, I had an emergency appendectomy, and um, it just so happened I was scheduled to be on retreat like a day and a half later. It was like a very short time. I think I literally like got discharged from the hospital, went home and packed and went to the retreat. It was a little bit, I was just absolutely determined to get to that retreat. Well, as you can guess, I was not in very good shape when I got there. You know, I just had surgery. No concentration, mind going everywhere, a lot of tiredness. It wasn't exactly sloth and torpor in the classic sense, but it was, you know, low energy. And the beauty of it was that the energy was so low that my mind just couldn't think of any of its normal strategies for resistance or for um, working with or gaming the system or doing meditation at all. All I could do was just kind of sit there. And what was beautiful about that was that this organic sense of care, of compassion, just came up, oh, this is all we can do. It's okay. And that, that kind of just simplicity of resting with, relaxing around, caring about, it might not do anything right away, yet it can open up to something much bigger, very beautiful and can open up to compassion, a sense of, okay, all beings are injured sometimes, are unwell sometimes. Just like me, all beings have hindrances sometimes. I don't need to take it personally. Restlessness happens. It comes installed with the human nervous system. Just happens. So do all the others. It's not about me, it's about all of us. All of us having these human conditions, right? So it's a difference between identifying with, taking it personally, and acknowledging with as much grace, kindness, and compassion as possible that, oh, this is human. This is human. It's okay. Right? The stories are different. The objects of what we focus on are different. The experience is pretty much just human. So sometimes, this is all in a kind of category of an attitude towards the hindrance, right? This care, compassion, interest, very different results than judging or resisting or getting down on ourselves or blaming other people. Right? You can feel it in your body probably even when I'm saying that. And sometimes it can be tough, right? So much suffering though drops away 
when our narrow self-concern about our experience is no longer the center, right? When instead of it's me, it's my issues, it's just like me, all people experience this sometimes. Just like me. Another really helpful thing is to consider the beneficial and unbeneficial consequences of how you're relating to whatever's arising, right? Oh, this is the fifth time I have had a fantasy about a latte this hour, whatever it is, right? Right, just notice what's the impact. Notice that when the fantasy arises, maybe the awareness wanes. And the fantasy fades, awareness returns. Don't miss those moments. Don't miss them. They're really helpful. Notice the cause and effect, the conditioning of our minds. And sometimes that can bring some equanimity around the whole thing. Another thing that can be really helpful is to ask yourself, for the sake of what am I practicing right now? For the sake of what? Maybe it's for more wholeness or integration in your life. Maybe it's for healing. Maybe it's towards awakening. Maybe it's to improve your relationship with yourself. All of these are beautiful intentions. And for the sake of what? Tapping into something bigger than that moment. If it's a storm or an eddy. And that connection with the larger picture, right? Remembering that others suffer human hindrances too can help me examine the depths of my own heart with compassion, knowing that the not-so-nice bits are pretty common to all of us. That leads to wisdom and compassion for myself and for the people who aren't acting perfectly in my life. You may have noticed there might be one or two in your life too, right? The Buddha talks about this in a lot of ways. I'm going to just talk about one of them. This comes from the Atakavaga, often called the Book of Eight. Um, it's one of the earliest texts, according to many scholars of the Buddhist teachings. And he's talking about here, noticing people and their quarrels. He says, I will speak of my dismay in the way that I was shaken, seeing people thrashing about like fish in little water, seeing them arguing with each other, I became afraid. The world is completely without a core. Everywhere things change. Wanting a place of my own, I saw nothing already, not already taken. I felt discontent at seeing conflict to the very end. 
And then I saw an arrow, hard to see, deep in the heart. Pierced by this arrow, people dash about in all directions. When the arrows pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. So this is a profound teaching and the arrow, the barb, is craving discontent itself, the running around. And what he's noticing in this is that many, many people have this arrow in their heart. Of course, he dedicated his life to teaching people how to remove the arrow. For us, it can be maybe removing the second arrow, the third arrow, the tenth arrow from ourselves. And not necessarily layering extra suffering on our projections of other people who are reacting oddly or annoyingly or otherwise to their arrows, right? Ah, they're running around. Why, that's not fun. It's this shift from me to we that can be really helpful. So finally, in working with transforming these hindrances in this way towards the wisdom that the Buddha just talked about, it's helpful to trust the process. Trust the process. The Buddha gives a simile in the suttas, the discourses, of a hen and her eggs. And saying basically, the hen just needs to sit and be with those eggs, incubate them and allow the process of the maturation to unfold. It's like that with awakening. And eventually, he then likens arhats, fully awakened practitioners, to the chicks tapping their way out of the eggs. If we are able to be with the process, trust the process, eventually, levels of awakening emerge. It's organic. We don't have control over the minutiae or the moment. And we can help set the conditions by being present for the process. This kind of trust really helps. It can, it's a trust that awareness, compassion, wisdom can metabolize and heal even the hardest experiences in our hearts, our inner lives. And in that way, if seen with awareness, patience, care, compassion, the hindrances instead become objects of awareness, objects of mindfulness that are food for wisdom and fuel for awakening. The obstacles actually become stepping stones then on the path. So thank you for your kind attention. We have a few minutes. If anyone wants to ask questions, share, offer comments, wisdom. I have the recording going because the Q&A is often helpful to others, but if you want it paused, just flag me and I'll pause it. Any thoughts, friends?
Yes, Charles, say hi. Yeah, hi, hi. Yeah, the marshmallow test I found uh, just find very interesting the strategies of the of the children to uh, to kind of delay, um, you know, whether it's like yeah, kind of hiding um, or or distracting themselves. It makes me think of you know something you, you know. Often I hear the the instruction to watch the arising and passing away of phenomena, uh, whether it be, you know, the, the, the marshmallow itself or the craving for the marshmallow, you know, I think these kids are, are, are real, um, you know, it's just really interesting that they have that, that kind of in, intuition. Uh, cause I find when I, you know, sometimes looking at that, it's like, yeah, I don't have complete control, but often there's a way in which the arising and passing away of things in my awareness is often dependent on my attention. You know, if I have knee pain, you know, it, it, it arises when I pay attention to my knee. And when I stop paying attention to my knee, it often passes. Uh, and so similarly with the, you know, with the marshmallow, I, you know, I like to, you know, the kids kind of like, just pretend it isn't there or like, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, uh, you know, if a tree drops in a, you know, falls in a forest and there's nobody there to hear it, you know, did the tree make a sound or does the tree even exist? <laughs> you know, what's behind, you know, behind my head, you know, does the world exist behind my head or does it only exist when I turn around and, you know, confirm my suspicions or my predictions so, um, so I just find that, I find that fascinating. Um, uh, you know, despite all of that, you know, there's a ton of controversy about the marshmallow test and what it really predicts and whether it's confounded by socioeconomics or not. But I still think the initial, uh, uh, strategies by the participants are very interesting. Thank you, Charles. That's great. That's great. And yeah, you're pointing to something profound about attention. Right. Like the way we pay attention to something and whether or not we're paying attention to it has everything to do with the attitude of mind and how it spirals up or releases. So there's a lot of subtlety there. Um, I appreciate what you're saying. Thank you. Eileen. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm really new to this awareness plus wisdom practice, but I'm really glad that you told the story, brought children into your Dharma talk. Because what I'm becoming aware of is that my defilements feel very young. You know, they're, they're like the thoughts that are connected to the defilements are like child thoughts. You know, they're, they're, and they're, it's like children inside of me are telling a story. And I love that what you were saying about the father, because that's how I try to approach, like, that's how I can be compassionate with my um, defilements is to think of them as kids. And I go kind of a different step, which is maybe not really part of the process, but to kind of recognize the defilements as, because I'm getting to know them, they really have offered me a certain form of protection 
during uh, traumatic childhood. And so instead of like chasing them away, I just kind of see them as the young pieces of me, even though there's not supposed to be a me, but a, you know, pieces of me that are, you know, that I can kind of entertain, get to know, pay attention to, but they don't have to be in charge anymore. And so I really, it, it, and it just makes me feel kind towards them and have compassion towards towards them. So I really love that you, you know, talked about kids in the, in this Dharma talk. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dawn. Thank you, Eileen. And you're bringing in a lot of wisdom. I will often talk about dealing with inner criticism and other um, obstacles of the mind in this way as well, of all of these things have something to teach us, right? And it's a matter of relating to it, as you're saying, like, sit down and learn what it is. You know, usually these strategies came about for a reason, whether evolutionarily as a species or as a person, and to be kind and interested without buying into the story, right? And it is so often that young story. I love that you brought that up. And I also really appreciate the way you brought the use of imagination in. It's not cheating to imagine and and to cast a kalatia, a defilement, or a hindrance as a temporary little being. That That is fine, right? These parts of ourselves do tend to emerge from the younger areas of our psyches. And I've told the story in this group before of being on a long retreat, very long retreat, and having um, essentially one of my um, hindrances pop in as a snarky tween girl and just like be with me for a few days, right? And just like learning to be with those dimensions, of our inner life in a way that's kind and respectful and learn and we can learn from them without buying into all the unhelpful stuff they necessarily are, are, are trying to say the narratives of the mind. It's powerful. It's powerful. Any other thoughts? Friends? Yeah. Kate. Hi. Hi, hi everybody. So yeah, um, it was, it's interesting because this morning, um, right before starting to sit there, I live in this cooperatively owned place and, um, there's a big drama going on around, um, replacing heaters and, and my partner particularly is very, you don't do that if you don't have to, you know, you don't buy anything new, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I really kind of believe that. And I could see that there was like something being moved forward that could set us up against many of our partners. And, you know, I I just, when I sat, it was like, oh, wow, this is major dukkha here. You know, what's in the way of kind of letting this go or being soft with it or whatever. And um, between just looking at how much I don't want to be in opposition to these people who I generally love, even though I disagree with what they're doing here. And then when you were talking at the end, the other thing was about the belief, you know, that it is it true. And what I, what I sort of felt was 
during the sit, I really felt like I really want to just let this go. And there was a part of it that was just like, screw it. If you want to spend the money that way, you know, because we all have to kind of contribute. So it was like our money too, but it was like, screw it. We have the money. I don't want to fight about this. But then there was this thing about, but I do believe that you don't just buy new and better willy nil, you know? And so what I just was thinking about that I came to was we can hold to the value and the belief about that and give up wanting to make other people believe it also and act on it. And that was where the crookedness felt like it. That's where it feels like the, 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 the dukkha of it is, you know? So I think, I think that's a way to move forward and to talk to my partner about it too. I I love what you just said about um, letting go of the need for other people to be different than they are. Right. Mm -hmm. There's something so profoundly respectful about letting them be them. And still, if it's a treasured value, you don't need to let it go. Right. And, and the other thing you brought up was about something about having compassion. And I went, Oh, okay. And then I just thought, you know, they're all just trying to live their lives and get through it and make things easy for themselves. Exactly. You know, so. Exactly. So thanks. Lots of, lots of learnings in there. (laughs) Thank you. And it's a great story. It's such a perfect illustration of where this practice meets the reality of people, right? Where we bump into each other. Right. (laughs) We just do. Thank you. Yeah. Are are you sure is something I had taped to my bathroom mirror for a couple of years. <laughs> if the answer is yes, take a really close look. <laughs> we have time for maybe one more. Anyone wants to share? Yes, Jeannie, hi. Hi. Um, well, I'll just say that in the last couple of days, my, my son, his wife, and their five-year-old hyperactive daughter has have been here, and I've spent quite a bit of time with them. And um, we'll see them today as well. And the... I have an opinion about how they sometimes are too harsh and reactive to her. <laughs> and then the practice, so many places for practice, you know, to keep my mouth shut <laughs> or to say something, what to say. Um, you know, it's very challenging and very um, worthy. I mean, of, of learning so many things because I'm not used to being around a hyperactive five-year-old. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's been fun as well as challenging, you know, that's all. I, but everything you've said, and I can't repeat it because my memory is so bad, but I've really appreciated it. Thank you, Don, And thank you, everyone, for your shares, too. Thank you very much, Jeannie. And what I hear is that you're practicing really beautifully with, wow, you know, the energy of hyperactivity or ADHD or whatever it is and the compassion and the um, the not knowing, like it, 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 in 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 how 
to interact in a way that is most compassionate and wise, right? It's a tricky situation when we're not the parent. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I appreciate that you're leading with the love and the inquiry. That's got to do everyone there good, whether they realize it or not, including yourself. Really quite beautiful. Um, I in part chose this talk today because many of us are entering the field of family or gatherings or whatnot. And this is a really fruitful time to notice what comes up in your mind when your buttons are pushed or when the people around you are not the people you would choose to have around you necessarily on a regular basis. You love them, but you may not like them. So whatever it is, the invitation is when you have the moments, when it's available, to let awareness meet that and just notice the impact in your mind. Work with it and let it become, let it become wisdom instead of aggravation or whatever else it might want to become. I'm going to close with just a few lines. Um, you've heard me read this poem before, some of you. This is by an ancient, um, a nun. Early in the Chan tradition, Ben Ming, she was alive in 1141. She wrote this and dedicated it to her master. Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom? But to cling to your afflictions is nothing more than foolishness. As they rise and then melt away again, you must remember this. The sparrow hawk flies through the village without anyone noticing. Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom and that the purest of lotus blossoms emerges from the mire? If someone were to come and ask me what I do, after eating my breakfast, I wash my bowl. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. Oh, thank you for your practice. May all beings everywhere benefit from the cultivation of our hearts and minds. May our practice ripple out through our hearts and lives to the lives that we touch and the lives that they touch and outward and outward. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from oppression. May all beings know the highest joy of awakening. Thank you, everyone. And happy Thanksgiving Thank to those of us in the U.S. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Nice to have been with all of you. Happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you so much.